imposter syndrome? How does one move past it? Ugh, sit back. There's this word we use a lot in society at the moment, which is imposter syndrome. It's a really interesting concept. I mean, the word itself, the phrase itself is kind of loaded with a series of assumptions um, that I, I don't think are necessarily helpful, but you must, in your practice, deal with a lot of people that are suff- showing signs of what we know as imposter syndrome. What's your, what's your take on it? And really like, how does one, how does one move past it? Well, this is a very new, this is a hot take because it's through an observation. The way that I come up with things is I spend as many hours as I can speaking to people, human mm. beings, one after the other, as many human beings as I can in different contexts and seeing how they are using these tools and what's working for them and what isn't. And for imposter syndrome, essentially not not being able to internalize your accomplishments, feeling like a fraud, which I've had. Um, Managing my binge eating and my anxiety differently helped me change my imposter syndrome for the better. And I'm seeing why that is now. I've just started work, well, now that I'm so passionate about binge eating as a result of weight loss diets being a thing that goes with my generation. um, What I've noticed is that when people give themselves permission to find whatever they find difficult, difficult, whatever it is, even if it's subjectively far more simple than all the things they're managing to do every day, something extraordinary happens. And that tends to have a really extraordinary impact because usually with the people I work with, because I'm talking about like booze and other drugs and food and stuff, there's a lot of shame and guilt associated with it. So that extra bit, we all, we all find it difficult to acknowledge, you know, a lot of us find it difficult to say, I was great at this and that's the end of the sentence without any caveats or, and it could have been da da da. When it comes to acknowledging our, say our professional accomplishments or academic accomplishments, the people I work with a lot of the time feel so ashamed and guilty about this thing that, that, that still eludes them that that's the bit they'll be like, yeah, I got a pay rise, but I still haven't sorted this out. People don't know how I behave when no one's watching. And like that bit, that's what drags people down. It doesn't let them really, really internalize and process their capacity because, well, for example, I've written two books. That's cool. They've done well. Um, writing books was not hard for me. Doing this, this is way, this is a, you know, being able to not stammer while I speak to you Mm. because I had the confidence to sit and breathe before I came in here rather than look at notes or only binge eaters will understand this, but being able to start a binge and then bring it back as opposed to just starve myself for weeks or whatever I was doing before Mm. is a power and a trust in myself and an ability to close the gap between what I, why, what I would tell other people to do and what I do, and a sense of integrity when no one's watching that seeps into every area of my life. But the trick was to allow myself to find something incredibly difficult that other people thought was a no-brainer and not think that that meant I was stupid or weak, but just that's the way things have gone for me. I, I remember sitting with Marissa Pierre. Um, and she said that she's never had a patient, whether they were a sports star or a, you know, successful millionaire or whatever, 
that believed they were enough in terms of her patients. So the people that had come to her struggling with something at the root of it is that they, they didn't believe they were enough in some capacity. Do you agree with that? I think, uh, yeah, I think self-worth. Self-worth is something that comes up a lot. And if I come to you and, I, you know, it's clear that I have my self-worth is in the proverbial bin, I just think I'm a fucking, you know, useless, worthless, don't deserve anything. Um, what's the start of that process to, to get me to a better place? Like, where do you, what do you do with me? So if you came to me, it wouldn't be just the problem wouldn't be I, I have low self-worth. It would be I want to change this behavior. Yeah and, right? yeah. and I want to change it. I've been, you know, drinking too much alcohol, smoking too much of that, sniffing too much of this. Mm -hmm. Where would you start with me? Well, we would get an honest baseline of where you're at now. So that's why in the book we do like a snapshot letter without judgment, totally private to just say like, I think a lot of the time we create plans for who we want to be as opposed to who we are. And we use this stuff to find ourselves. And I think, first of all, you meet yourself and you get on board with who you meet. And then I would help you to understand why you've come to be this way. So in that first step, getting, yeah. on, you know, getting to understand who I am and getting on board with who I meet, it, that's through a snapshot letter. Yeah. So it's essentially saying, here we are today. This is where I'm at. Mm -hmm. This is where I've got to. This is where I'm starting. Usually it's quite a fed up letter. Like something's got to change. Here we go. But what it does is it sort of anchors the process and says, right, this is where we begin. And then what we start moving on to is the fact that you already know what to do. I believe that the people who buy my books already know what to do. And I believe that a lot of people feel really patronized when they're told what to do. They know what to do. And if they don't, they can Google it. They don't know why they're not doing it <laughs> despite wanting to do it. So then we start thinking about closing the gap between the advice you'd give another person. So I just say to people, what would you like to be doing? I don't give them an A or a B. I would like to be running a marathon every, every, you know, every couple of months. I'd like to be fit. I'd like to be skinny. I'd like to be a good partner. I want to be perfect. Okay. Why, why are you here? Why are we having this conversation? Because I'm not. I'm drinking so much alcohol, sniffing so many things and doing all the na naughty things I shouldn't be doing. And I can't stop myself. But I know you're right. I do know what I should be doing. I just can't do it. Okay. Yeah. And in the past, when you've created plans to change. Yeah. What have they looked like? Um, I've basically thrown all of the alcohol out of my house and everything that I could possibly sniff. And I have emptied the fridge and put only vegetables in. And I have... Um, written it down on a piece of paper and then a week later I'm back to all of the naughty habits so what you've done is you've punished yourself you've put things in place yeah to say this has got bad yeah I need to create this environment and control yeah. and isolate yeah so that I don't do the bad thing yeah did you establish why what what you're afraid you might have to experience if you change did you identify if you get there what if it's not as good as you think if you get there, will you have to do all the things that you've told people you're going to do when you get there? Is the process of getting there one that you're familiar with? No. All of that. What do you think you're going to have to get through? What are you going to have to prove? What, do you, what triggers are you going to have to respond to differently? These are the things people don't talk about. What self-doubt are you going to have to push against and disprove and update along the way? 
it's, it's not about thinking you're going to be able to focus on what's bad. And also, you should anticipate that in a week's time you're going to want to use. You should put things in place. What can I put in place to, you know, this is, I found this really compelling in your book, because it's something I think about a lot. You know, we think of motivation as being this like constant. People ask stupid questions like, how do you stay motivated all the time? Which is, again, a, a, is an assumption that people that are successful in whatever facet of their life are able to always feel a sense of motivation. But um, how does one prepare for that, that dip, that speed bump, that, you know, the regression, the relapse? It's, uh, I think the best bet you have is the conversation you have with yourself when your plans don't go to plan. And the, uh, I think, first of all, you prepare by, yeah, you can have the best plans in the world, but you should assume that your plans will not go to plan. And even with the best tools in the world, you should assume that you're not able to preempt every single trigger, every single challenge. The way that you do it is you start to reframe challenge as an opportunity to vol voluntarily demonstrate your capacity. You're like, here we go. I... I'm off, I'm off grid right now. And all I've got is the advice I'd give another person and the conversation I have with myself that's gonna turn into what I do with my hands or don't do. And I think that if you really focus on making that conversation one that holds firmness and compassion together, then that's the best thing you've got. Because what you're chasing there is to feel smart and calm and proud of yourself. And you already know what you tell someone else so the more you do that and the more you take that advice and you see the results, obviously, and it actually works, the more you start doing it in other areas of your life. And my, my job is to make myself redundant to people as quickly as possible. I think we should have been taught this at school. We have to change habits our whole lives. Like, why is life dra dragging us along and making us change them when we're all depleted and desperate? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's the conversation you have with yourself. And the conversation you have with yourself, very often... People, people say to me like, how, how can I hold kindness and firmness at the same time, mm -hmm. right? So how can I change habits which involve sitting in discomfort and craving and urges mm -hmm. and still be kind to myself? Because being kind to myself means doing whatever I want whenever I want to do it. And what I always tell them is, it's kind of like if you, let's say you have a kid and you read it, an article somewhere and realized that this treat you've been giving your kid at 11 a.m. every day for the last year is actually not very it's, it's really unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So as of tomorrow, you're not going to give the kid the treat. You know you're not going to give the kid the treat. The kid doesn't know yet. Kid wakes up tomorrow. It's 11 o'clock. You're not going to give them the treat. What's, what's the kid going to do? Want the treat. And, and what else? Cry. Kick off. Yeah? Yeah. Would you blame the kid for crying? No. You'd expect the kid to cry. Yeah. It's used to something. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't make its life miserable. You'd make it as comfortable as possible and you just repeat that in a row until it realizes that it's come out unscathed. Compassion, I know why you feel this way. Of course you feel this way, you deserve to feel this way. You scream all you want, babe. That doesn't mean I'm gonna do what you want. That's the conversation you have with your body over and over again where you hold compassion and firmness together until you've done it in a row until it's easy. That's my angle. And if I, it, does, it, does it help to remove the, you know, the kid wants the candy? or whatever, yeah, whatever the thing the kid was expecting in the morning. Does it help to remove it from the environment? So if I, t if it's, you know, I've struggled sometimes with like, I had this like sweetie drawer in my house at one point and I, I knew I didn't want to eat the sweets, but when something would happen, maybe it'd be late at night, I feel a bit hungry, maybe, you know, a bit stressed, I'd end up in the drawer. 
And so I always, always wondered to myself, would it just help to just remove the drawer, just like pour it in the bin? I ultimately did. Um, but I'm just wondering if the, those cues, those triggers, removing them completely is the answer. I have this question all the time about abstinence and sobriety and whether, you know, again, there are some people for whom it's easier. My approach is very much more for the general population. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the time it's more, you know, we all sit in the middle and I want you to feel like you can have chocolate in your house mm -hmm. and consume it and enjoy it and not feel powerless over it. So at the core of my message is you decide what you do with your hands and any negotiation you have internally about it is a jumping off point and doesn't actually make you do anything and is an insight into how what you're telling yourself about the sugar and what it means and how you'll feel if you don't have it. If you were trying to build up a streak and get some time under your belt, yeah, maybe. But ultimately, what I would recommend under those circumstances, impose some friction. Give yourself some speed bumps to start thinking about whether you actually want to do it. So for example, if I want to, if I'm working into the night uh, writing, which I love doing, invariably at like 1 a.m. I start thinking about delivery. Mm. And about 3 a.m. I regret it strongly. Same. So with that in mind, I don't just delete Deliveroo. Car details are out, address is out. It's not because I don't trust myself. It's because I want to put in moments where I think, ah, remember you didn't want to do this? Do you remember why you didn't want to do this? Make it harder for myself to do the thing that I don't want to be doing mm -hmm. and easier for myself to do the thing that I do. Like back in the day when I used to hate exercise, I used to go to sleep in my gym kit. <laughs> so there was just one less thing to do. Mm. Um, so that's like removing friction exactly. versus adding it. Exactly. So I would, if I were you, I'd impose friction first, like put that drawer somewhere else. Mm. And, and then when you go looking in another place, start thinking to yourself, God, why is that drawer? It disrupts the autopilot. That's what's something I've struggled with. I, I, I do a lot of like late night eating and then I always regret it in the morning because you wake up feeling bad, mm. you know, especially if you've eaten just before you fall asleep. The body hasn't really had a chance to digest it. Sometimes you get like some, I don't know, reflux, whatever they call it. And I've always wondered how to stop myself doing that when I have when I have the urge. How do I break that habit? I guess, what's the friction that I can add? Don't be hungry at that time. True. That's, do you know what? Sometimes I get really deep in the weeds about binge eating and policy around it and obesity and how we've got to take down all the diets and everything. And sometimes I forget to say stuff like, don't be hungry, that mm. helps. You know, like there's so many like deep psychological stuff and we all have our own complex relationship with food and stuff. And the, that's what's really difficult about talking about food is because it is all the good things too. It really is. And much like with alcohol and other drugs, when people, people who struggle and feel powerless around it feel really misunderstood because they hate it by that point. It's the bane of their life. Mm. It's all they think about all day. Have I been good? Have I been bad? What am I gonna have? Was that okay? Conf conflicting nutritional advice. Like, it's got out of hand. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky. And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one of a kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky. And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one of a kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.